there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in coding and you'd like to learn more about what it's like to be a software engineer or what about a sales engineer, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is a software and sales engineer who's also the CEO and founder of his second startup in the podcast industry and he only graduated in 2013. But before I introduce you to Pete Bersinger, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive look into the episodes and the professions that we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. You just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Pete Bersinger, the founder and CEO of Picasso, a company that helps brands use data to advertise more intelligently in podcasting. Picasso shows brands where they're already being talked about, where their competitors are advertising, and then helps them validate a show by showing listening numbers and past advertisers. Pete was also the founder and chief technology officer at Potable, where he built a multi-platform podcast listening app from the ground up into a company with 10 employees and 40,000 users securing close to a million dollars in funding. Potable is a multi-platform podcast app that learns what you love and suggests new podcasts based off of your preferences. Pete, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your mushroom coffee and ready to go? <laughs> well, thanks, Andrea. I still am on my mushroom coffee and I am ready to go. And Excited we should, to be here. Yeah, well, thanks so much. We should let our listeners know, maybe they were hearing birds chirping during the introduction that isn't like some tape or some meditation music that I'm listening to in the background here. You are actually sitting in the middle almost of like a forest, right? That's right. So I'm just outside Asheville in North Carolina, out here for the corona pandemic from New York City. So it's quite the change of scenery, but I definitely am enjoying it out here. So, But apologies for the birds and any other animal noises that may result. <laughs> I hope you don't. I mean, from my standpoint, I actually love it. I think it's super soothing to hear that. And I want to let our listeners know if they hear banging and sawing and other obnoxious noises, that's coming from me because I'm living in the middle of a construction zone. You're going to have quite an auditory experience here today, my friends. So Pete, let us get into what you're doing right now. You started Picasso. Was it in August of 2019? Is that right? That's right. But Correct. it's the 2.0, I guess, of your other tech startup that you founded in 2016 called Potable. Can you give us a quick overview of what these two companies are, what they do, and how they relate to one another? Absolutely. So both are in the podcast space and both focus on transcriptions for their podcasts. So 
We started out working on Potable a couple years back when we were actually at our old job, TapAd, which I can get more into. But the main function of Potable, which you've actually described really well, was a listening app to help users find new podcasts. Because I think it was a problem then. I think it still is somewhat of a problem now. But it's very difficult to find new shows new quality shows, you know, like this one that you may have relevant, helpful content for you. So our big plan was to then transcribe a lot of the top shows, analyze the content, and then to provide listeners with similar shows to ones that they had already been listening to and had already clearly enjoyed. So if you listen to a podcast about, say, bird watching, we would say, okay, here are 10 other podcasts about bird watching that you may enjoy. And yeah, so that was essentially the gist of Potable, the the listening app. And it turned out to be reasonably popular. We got up to about 40,000 users. But we found that while we thought our recommendation engine was basically one of the best ones around that we found, it didn't feel like it was enough of a 10x major improvement to really drive in oodles of listeners. So we found while it was like a nice feature, it wasn't essentially a killer feature. And in a way, podcast listening apps were becoming then and pretty much now are more or less commoditized and just basically rely on the content on them, which is why you see Spotify making these huge multi-million dollar podcast acquisitions like The Ringer, for instance, because it's all about now the content you have on your podcast app. Okay. So what is Picasso and how does it play off of what you found to be the kind of missing pieces in Potable? Right. And so the transition there was we essentially decided that the podcast player game wasn't the best route with giants like Apple, Spotify, etc. coming into the game. So our thought process was then, well, okay, we've got this transcription tech. We know how to analyze the shows. What else can we do with the transcriptions? So then we started analyzing them to actually detect who were the past sponsors of episodes. So for instance, you know, we could see if Joe Rogan says, oh, this episode is brought to you by Casper mattresses, then we would analyze that and detect and say, okay, Casper sponsored this episode. So what Picasso can do is Picasso can help with that. So say you're another mattress company and you want to know all the places where Casper mattresses has advertised, we can help show you that. So then you can see, okay, Casper has repeatedly advertised on Joe Rogan. So that must be a show that's working for Casper. So then we can show you that and potentially similar shows to Joe Rogan as well. Or say if you're Casper and you want to bet some new show like So maybe the Tim Ferriss show, we could show you all of the past advertisers for a particular show. And then you could see which of the past sponsors have renewed or not, which sponsors maybe only did one or two episodes versus sponsoring it for a prolonged period. And that can kind of give you a good insight on which advertisers, you know, if any, work well for that show. So that's kind of what we can help do on the advertising front there. And then also one exciting thing that we're just releasing now is we can show advertisers who are the listener demographics of certain shows. So say Casper, again, wants to know what are the listeners like of Joe Rogan? And then we can tell them, okay, they're 80% male, you know, usually in bigger cities, 
in the US and here's a rough income breakdown for them along with their age. So that's another exciting thing that we're working to roll out now. So these are features that you have developed, literally. Have you been the engineer behind this software or the chief technology officer helped guiding the research? Yeah, so we've had a bit of remote engineering help here and there, primarily for some of the transcription technology. But by and large, the whole thing has been coded by me. So we are looking to, you know, now that we're starting to make some money and we're looking at raising money again and potentially hiring some other engineers. Okay. So how big a company is Picasso right now? And is it self-funded at this point or do you have any angel or venture funding? So right now, Picasso, we are a team of three right now. So it's me, we have a head of growth, and then we have basically two like very part-time advisors. So they'll hop on calls at least once a week or so. So we're a fairly small team. And occasionally we do have the audio engineer as well, depending on how you count an employee. But we are self-funded now. We're still the same company as Potable, in which we raised close to a million dollars. But we spent that money a year and a half ago. So that money's been gone. But we are self-funded now. Luckily, we're revenue positive and making money now. So that's definitely helpful. But I am thinking about raising money again soon, potentially. But the reason I've been a bit hesitant for that is one, I haven't really wanted to raise money unless absolutely necessary because we haven't really wanted to give out more equity if we don't really need to. However, there's sort of a competing issue with web companies like this. If you don't build it and scale it very quickly, there's going to be this winner-take-all effect where somebody else could raise $2 million and then build it out faster. Wow. So it's like <laughs> you've got to like find the sweet spot. Yeah, absolutely. We were looking to you know, grow a bit more and then start talking to investors again. But I mean, we also have our old past investors from Potable who I have kept in the loop with everything. So I think those conversations could be good to start up again. Okay. So as I said in the introduction, your title is founder and CEO of Picasso. But I don't think I would be wrong to say that you're there on a typical day, Pete. I know you're in North Carolina now, but when you were in Manhattan, just kind of chilling in the big office, what kind of responsibilities do you have at this point? So I think in terms of responsibilities, it's just about most of the business, I would say. So one thing is figuring out essentially what should be built in terms of the product and then going out and actually coding it and then making sure what previously has been coded and is up on the site now is functioning. So there's kind of the software engineering side, there's the product management side, and then there's also the sales side, which is a lot of reaching out to brands and agencies, emailing them and talking to them on calls and giving demos of the platform to ideally get them to sign up for the platform and to also hear from a product perspective as well what their needs are and what could be good to build down the line. And then also any kind of management of our freelance workers as well and pinging them, kind of keeping them going. So, And then also keeping investors in the loop as we 
kind of go, but it kind of depends there how big of a job that is at the time. Sure. How has the coronavirus affected your business, if at all? Right. So it definitely, I think with companies, with most companies, when times are tight, advertising is one of the first things to get looked at to be trimmed down. So I think podcast advertising, the spend has slimmed down some, but I think it's still there. And I think this can be a good time for actually companies to lock down long-term deals with podcast shows to sponsor them. So I think there's definitely still a fair amount of activity with that. But I do think several agencies we kind of were talking to about signing on have said, we're, you know, we're going to pause this for now. Like We don't really have the budget. So I think there's definitely been some effect, but the world is still going on, at least in our sector. It's not totally extinguished. Good. Absolutely. What did you learn building Potable, which you started with your buddy back in 2016? And I'm going to ask you about TapAd, where you were working at the time, but I'll ask you about that in a minute. But what did you learn building Potable that you have brought with you into Picasso? Definitely a lot of things we would have done differently. I think one thing is you need to essentially, when you're building a new startup idea, most startup ideas fail and that you need to go into it looking at it like your idea is most likely going to fail. And so your goal should be to attempt to validate it as quickly as possible so with Potable, you mean our plan fail was, fast. Yeah, exactly. Our plan was to build this app, then have the recommendation engine, and then essentially get advertisers to do dynamic ad insertion in it. So it was this big, long plan. And we didn't really think about validating it quickly along the way. But I think if we had thought about it more in that path or more in that light of failing quickly and trying to validate it sooner than later and not assuming our idea was just going to work. I think we should have had kind of the opposite mindset. That this idea is probably not going to work. How can we get really good proof that it will work is I think one thing that's definitely changed my mind. And I think you can test out ideas way easier than at least I thought you could. So for instance, for Picasso, say we're thinking about like, putting out a new feature like putting out the listener demographics for a podcast. So instead of actually needing to have the entire feature fully built out with all of the data points in it, instead, we could actually be emailing out to agencies saying, Hey, we're releasing this feature soon. Would you be interested in hopping on like a quick demo call to view this ahead of time? And then that way, before I actually go and build it, I can then learn, okay, are they interested enough, one, to respond and B, two, to take the demo, because if they then take that demo, they're putting skin in the game. So they're definitely interested there. And for a lot of ideas, say they weren't interested and they didn't respond, then I could have saved myself and our company the time and resources of building that product that they didn't want. So the fail fast part is big. And then I think also, I don't think this applies to every company. And I think startups are beginning, this is beginning to changing, but I think maybe like, 10-ish years ago, there was a less of an emphasis on startups making money, you know, actually figuring out their business model. But I think today, times have changed and that it's never been easier to start a startup. And for investors, startup investors, they have many options of startups to pick from. So they are significantly preferring ones that are actually making revenue now. And I think it's also just healthy for 
the business to try and focus on being revenue positive from the start, not just to be making tons of money, but more so to test out and validate your business model and ideas sooner than later. And by making your actual potential customers put their quote unquote skin in the game in terms of dollars into your idea, just because that's kind of the best validation for it. And the sooner you can do that, I think the more info you'll learn and the better the company trajectory, I think, can become after that. Yes, definitely. And I want our listeners to know that I interviewed a guy by the name of Steve Blank on Time for Coffee. It's episode 333. Steve Blank is a serial entrepreneur and he is the godfather of what's known as the lean startup methodology. Exactly what he was just describing there, which is go to your consumers, go to whoever it is you're trying to sell to or you want to sell to and test it. See if they're interested before you start spending all kinds of time and money, whether it's building the product or producing the product, and then finding out that it's not really what they want. So excellent, excellent suggestion there. Before you decided to build your own company, Pete, you worked at another tech startup called TapAd in the ad tech space. You started there as a software engineer. What does that mean you did? So yeah. Oh, and first off, I'm actually jumping back to that last point. I actually have read The Lean Startup, which was by Eric Ries, but I think he knew Steve Blank very well. And I've definitely heard of Steve Blank, so I'm sure he put things very well. His are really where I got kind of all those ideas. And I really read a lot of those things while pivoting from Potable. So those ideas are definitely very helpful. And I really wish I had had them sooner. So super helpful. But going to your question of the software engineer life at TapAd, and also at the first company I worked at, Meraki. Overall, the software engineering life is definitely a very cushy life, I think is a decent word for it. You kind of get in, you know, I would typically get in between 9.30 and 11 and most days there wasn't anything. Usually super urgent, you kind of go in there, you might have a quick team huddle when you guys get in just to make sure everybody's on the same page. And then most of the time, you just kind of sit at your computer coding away, oftentimes with headphones because you're in an open office and you're trying to focus. And then, you know, get a leisurely lunch and then come back and then do a bit more work. A lot of times, though, I would actually work out in the middle of the day, go to the gym just to get a nice reset. But most of the time, when you're a software engineer, you're just kind of sitting there with your headphones on, coding away at your computer. And then occasionally there will be team huddles here and there to essentially kind of figure out what you're working on and if you have any blockers that you need help on. What I love about that, first of all, that sounds like a pretty nice life. And I love the fact that you get in between 9.30 and 11 and then in the middle of the day, which wasn't that much later, you'd be breaking for lunch or breaking to go to the gym. What time did your day end? Well, it would usually be between five and six, honestly. It wouldn't be a super long or stressful day. And I think there are people who really like it, but I found for me, it wouldn't really motivate me a ton. It was kind of like just a thing I did. Whereas with my own company or with your own business, it's a lot more motivating when you know that what you get out of it is totally proportional to what you put into it. Whereas with kind of a normal job, I doubt my boss and my bosses are listening to this, but my 
kind of mindset was more like, well, I'm kind of going to keep getting the paycheck. I'd rather be spending more of my time working out or working on my own projects at home on the side or kind of doing other stuff. So it was a good life. And I made a lot of good friends of really smart people and worked on cool things. But it definitely wasn't the most demanding of jobs, which was also nice as well. What I also really love about this, Pete, is that TapAd correlates data to connect brands to consumers globally. All right. And they do that through a safe privacy first tap ad graph. And what they're doing is they're helping their customers realize the full potential of digital advertising through identity resolution. Now, I'm guessing that that means they're kind of doing what you're doing at Picasso, but for a different type of customer. Is that right? In some ways, there definitely are some parallels, and both are kind of in the tools in the advertising space. And the way I would describe TapAd more so when I was a sales engineer there, which was right after I was a software engineer there, it's kind of like you know when you look up something, say a new sweater on your phone, and then all of a sudden you start seeing that ads for that sweater on all your devices, like your computer and tablets. And everything, TapAd would basically enable that component where it would link your phone and your computer and say, these both belong to Peter. Ah, so it's like yeah, the so, stickiness of those ads or of that site. Yeah, exactly. So it would help unify all the person's devices from a marketer's perspective. So then they knew that then, okay, we could show Peter his sweater ad on both his phone and computer and all of his devices. And it was actually, you know, that was my first exposure to the ad tech world. And it was very eye opening to kind of know how much is really going on under the surface. So I don't think a lot of people know, I think it is an increasing awareness with all the focus on privacy. And I think that's a very good thing. But there's a lot going under the surface with how people are being tracked and how the ads are being computed for them to be shown. And it's just really how the biggest companies today make all their money. So there's a lot going on under there for sure. What did you learn at TapAd, Pete, that you brought with you into building Potable? And when did you get the inspiration to kind of go out on your own? Was that something that you'd always had in the back of your mind? So when I first became a software engineer at TapAd, I always had in the back of my head that I kind of wanted to get out of software engineering and do something a bit more people-focused. So I decided to switch internally actually to a sales engineer where maybe half of my job was then talking to potential clients and explaining the technical details for them, while the other half was you know kind of troubleshooting technical items. And then on my team, actually, my boss, Sheldon, he actually had let me know at the time he was working on this data science project where he was analyzing podcast transcriptions to provide recommendations. And I told him I could probably help with that and then help make that a lot better. So, you know, that's kind of where we got the idea. And even I think almost even a year before we quit TapAd, we were working on it. And it wasn't really a secret. Our bosses knew we were working on it. So that's kind of where that idea came from, totally from him. And I had actually hadn't really thought of going down a startup until that kind of was put on my plate. And we actually raised, I think, 50 grand while we were still 
at TapAd to work on it. And then once we had raised that, we were like, okay, it definitely makes sense to quit. But in terms of what I had took with me, I think a lot of the knowledge of the ad tech space and how a lot of inside knowledge with you know how the digital advertising industry works was big. And also some of the communication and sales skills learned from the sales engineer, I think year and a half or so I had the time there, I think were very valuable in terms of working to communicate technical details to clients and also my only real exposure there to sales definitely, I think, helped lay the foundation for a lot of what I'm doing now, which is, you know, a lot of part-time coding or sales outreach. Okay, got it. So your first engineering job out of school after you graduated in 2013 was working for Meraki as a full stack engineer. Is that Cisco Meraki? That's right. So it's Meraki and then Cisco acquired them. All right. So it has to do with Wi-Fi networking. Is that correct? Yeah. It's basically online management of your Wi-Fi network. So say you were the guy who had to install Wi-Fi at all of the Starbucks in the US. So we would then sell you the hardware to then put the networking devices in there. And then we'd also give you a web platform where you could go on and then view the health of all your devices and then configure some settings as well. Okay. Well, I want to let you know, I read the description of what you did as a full stack engineer, Pete, and I might as well have been reading Greek. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because I could not understand what it was. I mean, the words, it's like, I added features to and maintained a complex legacy Rails web app split across 100 servers. I understood the servers part. I spearheaded a project to replace our support team's SSH usage with alternative admin-only web tools. I also developed and maintained Scala or Scala code to fetch, process, and analyze data from hundreds of thousands of live customer network devices. <laughs> that makes oh boy, sense gi- to you. <laughs> yeah, you're giving me a PTSD. I am. Oh, sorry about that. Well, let's flash back to when you were in college. You went to UC Berkeley and you got a BS and a BA in electrical engineering and computer science and applied mathematics. Did you know what you were going to do with your degrees when you graduated, Pete? More PTSD from thinking about those degrees. <laughs> but honestly, no, I didn't. I went into college actually majoring in physics engineering and then decided to switch to mechanical engineering because I thought it was more broad. And one of my first classes as a mechanical engineer was a programming class. And so I realized at the time, whoa, I actually kind of like this stuff. It's pretty powerful. And then switched to computer science from there. But I definitely didn't really know. I always knew you could get a pretty good paying job out of college. And I thought that was a good first step. And I thought coding was a very useful skill to have. But I never thought about being in a startup or my own business owner. I don't think of that thought actually ever really occurred to me. I think I kind of thought it was kind of weird at the time, to be honest. Well, let me just say here, and I've said this many times on the show with different guests, I've now interviewed hundreds of professionals and I ask all of them this question, Pete. And the truth is about 90%, and that includes me, 
had no idea what they were going to do with their degree. And the truth is, that makes sense because just what you were saying there about starting out thinking you were going to do physics engineering. So you thought you were going to do physics engineering. Then you took a class and you were like, ooh, wow, this is kind of cool. I like the coding piece. Maybe I'll be a mechanical engineer. And then, oh no, is that actually how you got into me? Maybe I'm mixing up the steps. But the bottom line is that what you went through in college, that actually is a great parallel for the way people's careers unfold because every job you do, every career you try, every company you're at, it's like you're getting exposed to new things, which open your eyes. Some of them saying, oh, I don't want to do any more of that. And some that say, wow, I really like this. I want to go deep here. And that's how your entire career unfolds, which is why I say that you should think about your major, or in your case, your majors, not as the tiny house that you're going to be forced to live in for the rest of your life, but rather as the foundation of an amazing, unique skyscraper that you're going to be building over the course of your career with each new job and each new career, adding a new floor in your skyscraper. I actually couldn't agree more with that. And I think that's held true well beyond college as well. For me, going into the software world, doing that for a couple of years, realizing, hey, this is cool, but it's really not exactly where I want to be. Then going to the sales engineering side, which is carrying over a lot of the technical skills that I had from software engineering, but applying them more to the sales side. And then from there, you know, kind of randomly meeting my co-founder and learning about startups and going into the startup world and still taking all that I've kind of learned before from the coding, plus also the sales engineering sales stuff into where I'm at now. So I totally agree, you know, with the foundation description there and, you know, taking what you know and using all your past skills and going forward with them. And that's why I say to any of our young listeners who are in the middle of this corona virus crisis, and especially those who are graduating this year in 2020 and who understandably may be super stressed out thinking, oh my God, how is all of this affecting the job market? And yes, I totally get that. But I want to let you know, it's going to be okay. Because just as you heard Pete mention that he only learned or at least was thinking about a startup thanks to his buddy that he worked with when he was at TapAd, those magical moments and I really mean it, magical moments that you could not predict are going to happen to you too, in which you are exposed to job opportunities, or somebody's going to open a door for you here, or they're going to open your eyes to something you didn't even think about, are going to happen to you over and over and over again, over the course of your professional life. And they will happen to you even in the midst of the coronavirus. Because if you are listening to this episode, Pete has already opened your eyes to different potential job boards out there or opportunities that may be out there for you or ways to think about building your career. If you're in an engineering track or computer science or applied mathematics, it is all going to be good. And actually, Pete, you had 
an internship and a job, even as a web developer, while you were still in college? How did you get the internship? And how important was it then to your ability to land a job as a full stack engineer after you graduated? Right. I got the internship, I believe, through a career fair at Cal. And I just was going around and applied to a couple different companies. And the internship was great, not only because it paid me money, but also because it gave me real world experience doing coding outside of the classroom. And I also do think it definitely helped get the job because, you know, it was useful to say I had some actual professional experience when applying for full-time jobs versus saying, you know, I had kind of nothing. Not to say you can't do it with you know next to no experience. You have to get your first job somewhere, but the internship was definitely helpful. What advice do you have for our young listeners, Pete, who may still be in school right now studying engineering or computer science or whatever? What classes or skills do you think are essential for them to nail down if they want to get into software engineering? And what about for those who may want to start their own business? Any additional classes that you'd recommend they take? In terms of software engineering, I would say ideally you'd start to build your own projects on the side. Ideally, something that you can actually put out there live on the web so you can actually get feedback from it in real world experience, building something on your own that other people will actually use. So for that, I would recommend not any class in particular, but actually just trying to build an actual project on your own that goes live. And for doing your own business, I think you can actually sort of tied the two together. I think for starting your own business, I think sales skills are honestly transferable across any kind of literally anything you do later in life. So I think you can definitely practice your online sales and communication skills just by even there's a lot of ways where you can even start with just an internet connection to start to try to make money online via drop shipping or you know writing your own blog or affiliate marketing i think there's a bunch of ways now where plenty of young people or really anyone can get started online and practice trying to make money online i think that can really sharpen your sales skills and i think if you're able to combine that with any kind of product that you're building on your own via software engineering i think that's really kind of can become really powerful there to combine them both One thing that I am recommending to those who are graduating in May or June and who may have had a job lined up and that job was taken away from you because of the coronavirus, because your future employer said, sorry, we're not going to fill that position anymore. Or for those of you who are super worried about finding a job in this market and you're interested in the entrepreneurial world, I would say get a job as a telemarketer because of the coronavirus, right? Get a job as a bill collector. I know that sounds like you have to hold your nose, but Pete, I'm curious whether you think that's like too awful to be recommending to young people to do. And the reason that I'm thinking about this is that you are getting sales experience. And my God, if you can get bills collected. There is no harder thing than you could be doing than doing that. And then when you get into a different type of sales job after the coronavirus is over, man, it'll seem so easy. I definitely agree with that. And I think trying to coax people to 
pay you or collect the bills. I think that is so valuable for any kind of business or job you go into down the line because one, you're you know learning how to deal with other people in a way that in a kind of a sensitive situation there. And I think that is really valuable going forward. And I know too, I've heard in one book I read about this called How to Negotiate Like Your Life Depends On It by Chris Voss, who is a former FBI lead hostage negotiator. And when he was wanting to get into the program, the program leader at the time said, what you have to do first is you actually have to go volunteer at a suicide hotline call center to basically talk to people who are very depressed or thinking about suicide and then essentially convince them out of that and talk to them. And he said that was invaluable for him. So I think you're definitely on the money there with those jobs bringing about very useful skill sets. Okay. I have two final T4C questions for you, Pete, that I try to ask all of my guests. And the first one is, I'd like to ask you about a time in your professional life when you struggled. And I'm sure there've been many points, especially when you went out on your own, but it may have been when you were working for someone else and maybe you even failed. How did you persevere? And was there a lesson that you learned in the process? Right. So I think one time, I think when I was working at my first job at Meraki, about a year and a half in, I really felt like software engineering wasn't for me. I was feeling like I wasn't really enjoying it. And I felt like I needed to change of pace. So that was basically when I decided to move across the country to New York. And when I joined Tappet, I kind of had the goal of switching out of that to become a sales engineer. But that I definitely was in a funk after going to software engineering and realizing, hey, this isn't really what I want to be in. And the way I kind of broke out of it that time was moving across the country and deciding, hey, I'm going to try to get into sales engineering. And then that really helped because I liked that a lot better. And then another funk was actually when basically we ran out of money with Potable for the app. And we had a bunch of employees and weren't really sure what was going to go next. We had to lay off pretty much everyone there. And it was kind of a total collapse of our worldview that we thought this thing was going to work. And then we ran out of money and everything didn't work. And one of my employees was my roommate who I couldn't pay, which was very difficult at the time. And how we got out of that was downsized a lot, figured out how to kind of consolidate our resources, get a bit more cash in the door, and then focus on where the product was going to go next. But at the time, I definitely probably lost more hair there during that couple months stretch than I did at any other point in my life. And what do you think the takeaway lesson is that you learned in the process? For that one, I think the takeaway is that there's going to be a lot of ups and downs and that when you're in the down, it can really seem like it's going to be permanent and there's no real way to get out of it. Even if you don't exactly see how to get out of it, it will pass so long as you keep moving your feet and doing your best. I think things will get better, even if it seems like they won't. A hundred percent. And I think that totally applies to the situation we're all in right now with the coronavirus. It seems like there's no way out. I mean, of course, it's going to pass, but in terms of jobs and the economy, and no doubt it's going to be super 
difficult, but just keep moving forward because if you're a runner, and I know Pete is, and I've gotten back into running, like there are times you're going uphill and it feels like, oh my God, I'm never going to make it all the way up. And the next thing you know, you're at the top and you may have a flat or you may be going downhill. And that is a metaphor for life. And I say that as somebody who's got a lot more miles on the odometer than Pete, but I promise (laughs) you, it will get better. All right. Final T for C question. If you could go back to Berkeley, Pete, and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? If I were to go back, I would probably start to as early as possible, try to start making money with an online business as soon as I could and not focus on... I mean, perhaps I would still get a standard job, but I think no matter what, I would try as early as possible to start trying to figure out some kind of online side hustle thing that could basically morph into a full-on business for you just because of the experience you get. And I think I found too, when I have something like that that's my own that I can build, it just helps to keep you really motivated and excited about life. So as soon as possible, I would go back and start working on that just to get that going. Great. Pete, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me while you're sitting on the porch in Asheville, North Carolina, and talking with me in the T4C community and sharing all of your experience with us for our listeners who want to learn how to break into the world of software engineering or software sales, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Pete's Espresso Shots episode, where he talks about the entry-level jobs, the skills that are important, what you should study or not in school, all of that, to see if that episode is already dropped. I hope that you and your colleagues at Picasso and Potable and your friends that you're living with right now in Asheville all stay safe during the coronavirus. And I hope that you are able to keep putting one foot in front of the other and become a huge success, Pete. Well, thank you very much, Andrea. I had a great time and I wish you the best as well and hope you stay safe also. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.